Welcome to this week's episode of Daily Horror Habit, the podcast for horror obsessives. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you horror movie discussions every Friday for your twisted pleasure. And as always be warned, these discussions may include spoilers. This week kicks off a periodic series of chats with guests who've picked films to discuss that they've never seen before in an attempt to help them tackle their ever-growing back catalog, a problem that uh, we're all far too familiar with. And for the first of several first-time chats, my guests and I are discussing Marcus Nispel's 2009 reboot of the seminal slasher series, Friday the 13th, in which, you guessed it, a group of young adults head to the infamous Camp Crystal Lake for a weekend and inevitably encounter the camp's lifelong resident, Jason Voorhees. And joining me this week to talk reboots, slashers, and the legacy of Voorhees is Director of Communications and Franchise for Obsidian Entertainment, Mikey Dowling. Mikey, welcome to the show, man. Hello. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, I can't wait to uh, chat about this film, a film that the opinion has greatly shifted uh, over the years since its original release. Um, we can talk a little bit sort of about the history of when it was released, that initial reception, and uh, I'm really excited to see how it landed for you because, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're not super familiar with Friday the 13th franchise? Yeah, I've seen the first one, and I know I know the intro to the second one, but I couldn't tell you anything else about it. Um and I think that's pretty much where the knowledge ends, minus maybe Freddy versus Jason, which I know I saw in theaters and barely remember anything of. So that's uh, about sure. the extent of my Jason knowledge. Perfect. Well, I think that, you know, the reboot is a really great jumping off point for people, whether or not, you know, they've seen other entries in the franchise. That's kind of also how you and I uh, settled on this one to chat about, because it really does feel like a sort of condensing of the first four movies, if you will, which is probably why it feels a little more approachable uh, than some of the other reboots. But before we get into Friday the 13th, I'd love to start with the first horror movie or moment that stuck with you, uh, for better or worse. Uh, for me, it was probably Poltergeist. Um, I remember being probably like five or six and going out into the living room, my mom was watching it. And she was like, hey, you should watch this with me. And I was like, what is it? She tells me it's Poltergeist. I don't know what that word means at six, so I have no idea. <laughs> um, and I came in initially on the scene where one of the investigators is in the kitchen and all the stuff with the food starts popping off. And so like that causes him to go into the bathroom and he starts like tearing his skin off in the bathroom. And I'm six and I had no idea how to deal with what I was just watching. So I was like, nope. And I ran away uh, and just kind of hid out in my room thinking, I'll be safe here. It's okay. But then I got really thirsty and needed water. And I had to go out into the like living room or the kitchen, which was just past the living room. So then I go out and it's now at the scene where the boy is on the bed and his clown toy disappears and then attacks him and I lost it. I just like went back in my room and like stared at my little mon like my little pet monster stuffed animal that I had and was like, don't you fucking move. Um, and that's basically what I did for like the rest of that night. Uh, and then that movie stuck with me for a very, very long time. Never saw it until I at least didn't see it until I was an adult. Um, and even then I would rewatch it with a group of friends for the first time since that viewing um, and that clown scene scared pretty much everyone in that room. So it's still effective, even though it's like the PG horror. Um, but yeah, that, that movie, that movie messed with me for a good amount of time. Yeah. That's so funny that that's the film that really stuck with you because I had a similar experience with that movie and um, the rating plays into that, right? Like my parents were not the biggest horror fans, but it was the type of thing where they're like, oh, this, you know, it was on TV or whatever. We'll see if, I don't know, I must have been seven or eight or something. But because it was PG, they were like, oh, this is totally going to be something that he can handle. But then when it got to that face melting scene where he quite literally just ripping chunks of his own flesh off and it's fallen in the sink. And then you just see the skeleton, this gory uh, skull and whatnot. I mean, it's 
one of those films from back in the day where it's just like, man, how did they get away with that <laughs> in a PG film? Even if the laws were loose around that and whatnot, it's just like, who saw this and wasn't initially just like, yeah, there's no way this is not a hard R. Yeah, I, I kind of blew my mind going back and finding out that it was PG. Because in my head, it was always this R-rated film. There's no way I should have been able to watch that as a kid. And then discovering it was PG, it was just like, oh, what does a ratings board even mean? Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I think that also that movie is really great at taking so many different types of, you know, primal scares in kids, I suppose, right? Whether it's that tree that's outside the window that's, you know, the branches are rubbing up against the window or, of course, the clown, which scared, uh, who knows, 90% of children out there as kids. Um, that movie in and of itself is just such a great amalgamation of uh, childhood scares and to have those little moments that are so much, so fundamentally disturbing, uh, like that sort of uh, face ripping scene. Um, yeah, that's one of those movies that I think uh, even still, like you have to warn people before they show them uh, that movie just because, you know, it is a good gateway horror film, but maybe, you know, push it until they're about 11 or 12 or something. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> but in getting in today's film, uh, Friday the 13th. So previously I'd asked you, you know, your experience with the franchise. Um, how did you feel about this movie? You know, it is a reboot. Um, did it feel approachable? I've always curious about, you know, people coming to reboots for the first time and not necessarily having uh, a great deal of, I suppose, context for a series or something like that. Granted, there's, <laughs> Friday the 13th is not necessarily the most complex <laughs> of films or premise, but uh, did it feel approachable? I think so. I, I think it was, it was interesting because it's a movie that I feel escalates and i'm sure we'll get into it, but it escalates in a very good way and it starts off with like almost really bad cheesy 80s camp and then just goes into this wild ride of a movie where i just was like yeah okay what's that next kill gonna look like um so i thought it was fine to get into they weren't really heavy-handed with the lore i think there's just stuff that like i question about it like I'm, we can either get into an hour later but like there's just stuff that's like if jason is so territorial like why didn't he go after half of the people he went after in this movie based on just their location right like that kind of was odd but i think for the most part uh it was all pretty easy to track um, and the stuff that I did know from one and two, seeing them kind of touched on in this was really cool, like in the way that they spun it too. Like I thought the the use of uh, Mrs. Voorhees' head was actually very well done in this movie. Um, and I love the evolution of Burlap Sack to uh, Hockey Mask, even though it was very convenient, but still fun. Yeah, for sure. Um, I guess, how do you feel about reboots or remakes in general, uh, horror or otherwise? Uh, I, I think it depends on how it's done, right? Like, I, I'm all for something being rebooted if it feels like there is just something that, like, technology couldn't allow to do it originally and just allow it to just kind of expand on that world a little bit more. Um, remakes are kind of the same way, but it feels weird with a remake if it's almost, like, shot for shot the same thing because then... Why did we need that? Um, so I'm I'm pretty accepting of them as long as it feels like there's like love and care and it's not like a cash grab just to go off of a title that's known, right? Like I kind of felt that way for the Nightmare on Elm Street reboot remake. Like I didn't think we needed that. I think the original one is still fine and really, really good and if you want it to be more modern, just watch New Nightmare, which is essentially all the same kills, but done in different environments. Um, so I liked this one, or at least this Friday 13th reboot more than that one. Sure. Yeah. I'm usually of the opinion with remakes and reboots that I'm more for them to experiment with it rather like you had kind of said, you know, don't just do this kind of shot for shot uh, remake. I guess the one exception to that for me would be uh, Marcus and Spell's other horror remake, which was uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which came out six years before this, um, which more or less kind of just feels like a shot for shot type of a remake in a lot of ways. But 
at the same time, um, there's a certain sort of just stylistic flair to that movie um, that I was a fan of. And it, at least it felt reminiscent of the original film in a way, even if, you know, there's not the great deal of creative liberties that are taken with that one. But I'm always a fan of just seeing how people can kind of play around in these pre-existing sandbox in unique ways. Um, and while this movie, you know, I wouldn't say is a great departure from, uh, you know, the Friday the 13th films and whatnot, it at least has like an interesting angle on Jason. It has that intro, which, you know, we're going to get into uh, that I'm a huge fan of. And just overall, you know, really, really well uh, stylized kills uh, in it, which, you know, at the end of the day, it's a slasher and uh, you can only really measure the gory merits of those films on their kills. So, um, but before we break down some more of Friday 13th film. I just want to do a quick segment, Tale of the Terror Tape, where I run down some of the stats for this movie. Um, so this movie made $93 million against a $19 million budget, which, you know, is not something that you can you can really uh, not say is, uh, you know, a failure by any means, even if on Rotten Tomatoes, it rocks 25% based on 175 critic reviews, while faring slightly better with a 46% audience score. Uh, that one is based on 100,000 uh, reviews. The film averages two and a half out of five stars on Letterboxd. Uh, and as I said, this is Nispel's second remake uh, that he had done for a classic horror franchise. But uh, in terms of that intro, which you had mentioned, you know, I thought it was a pretty bold way to begin this movie, right? It has basically 20 minutes of this intro with characters that, with the exception of one, are not really... Uh, important to the overall narrative, but it takes 20 minutes for that title card to drop. Uh, how did that intro kind of land for you? You said, I think you described it as being uh, sort of campy, right? It it was campy, but I think that mostly comes from one of the characters. Like, I think Ben Feldman's friend, uh, I can't remember his character's name in that. Um, that dude, just his whole performance and like the way he described what happened at Crystal Lake, which just felt like, the very on the nose, like we're going to tell you every little detail and explicit like exposition so that you know what happened, um, that kind of delivery. Uh, but then once the kills started happening, I was more blown away, just like, oh, OK, like especially when they went into the shrine room, and they saw the head of uh, his mom. And I was like, oh, OK, this is just two. So we started this movie off with the end of one. Now we've rolled into what two is, and then the rest of this movie is maybe three and four, just three. I don't know. Let's find out. Um, but I, I will say the while I didn't think the friend who first got killed, the the over the top expedition guy, I didn't think his death was crazy. Like when Jason went after that sleeping bag, <laughs> and that that was I was like okay. This is wild. And then like using bear traps and stuff was like kind of interesting to see too. Um, and it just went into this weird, like, I didn't know what to expect of this Jason. And then he started running at people. And then I just got terrified because it's like, I'm. The, it's one of those things where like, when you see big dudes who can go that fast, it is just horrifying in so so many ways um so him just dashing after ben feldman i was like oh no this is this is gonna be a very different film um but yeah it was, it was a good ride it was a good exponential like um exponential is the wrong word but like a good lift up like on the roller coaster like if you're like getting to the top for that title card each new kill like stacked up to get you to that like first drop to go into the film and i thought that was pretty fun yeah, so when I had originally seen this movie, it, when it came out when I was in high school, and I had only seen the first, the first two Friday the Thirteenth movies, I think, before I saw the remake or the reboot, and um, you know, in the last three to five years, I've gone back and you know watched the entire series and refamiliarized myself with those movies. Um, but it was the type of thing where I was really taken with the fact that. Marcus and Spell was able to basically give us this sort of like prototypical Jason movie right out of the gate, but he condenses it to the opening 20 minutes. So, you know, of course, you're going to hit all the hallmarks of a Friday the 13th movie, you know, drugs, teens, drinking, sex, camping out in the woods, and of course, lots of deaths. And it was really impressive to see right out the gate 
something that was resembling Friday the 13th, like the classic sort of uh, envisionment of that. But at the same time, kind of like what you'd said, it has these little oddities to it, to the formula where you're like, oh, well, so now he's like an NFL guy running full speed at you. And, you know, he's using a little more strategy. And then also the fact that, you know, oh, he's got like tunnels and stuff. Like, what is this all about? And so, you know, seeing little hints of that early on, I think, made it feel familiar while also like exciting in a way that I don't necessarily think I was anticipating. Um, and that's also the type of thing where when I show this movie to people that haven't seen it and, you know, some of my friends groups uh, are not the biggest of horror fans, but when I kind of force horror movies upon them sometimes, uh, it's something like this that I would show them because you're giving them something that they more or less are anticipating, but then there's this curveball to it. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit more about, you know, that new take on Jason, which is kind of more of a survivalist almost. Um, what did you think about that? Kind of just the way that in which he uses like traps and uh, the way in which they kind of explain how he can be everywhere, uh, seemingly always at once. Uh, I actually really, really liked that take. I thought it was a cool way to do a horror villain before he becomes like supernaturally strong and powerful. Um, I always did you ever see um, Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon? I haven't. That's on my watch okay. list. Though. It's it's very, very good. But there's a scene where Leslie is trying to explain why he does so much cardio. And he's like, man, in the <laughs> movies, they always just make it look like the the heroes are always running full speed. But they just look like they're just standing there. <laughs> it's just it's like the whole reason is because they just do so much cardio that they can get to wherever they need to. Um, <laughs> so like using the tunnels, I thought was really cool because he can bypass a lot of stuff. And it was actually really neat in that first segment because when he started stabbing up from the ground, my first thought was like, how deep is underneath of this house? Like, how much room does he really have to do this? And then realizing he built that out was a really cool uh, realization. Um, yeah, and the, the stuff he does, like baiting other kids to like have them come out to them and just like the way he plays them all against each other in that way is pretty cool. And like tries to go off their like base help. Like, Oh, you want to go help your friend? Like, don't do it. He's just, he's waiting for that kill. Um, so yeah, I, I dug it. I would, I wish there was more of this version of him going forward. Cause I would, I think you could do some really interesting, like over the top slasher kills with that kind of mindset. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, the, actor who plays Jason in this one, Derek Mears, uh, said that part of the take that they, you know, uh, pursued with Jason in this movie was all about him defending his territory, which was inspired by um, John Rambo in First Blood, which I thought was really cool. And it, you know, it's one of those things when you go back and you watch the old movies, it's like, oh, how does he get everywhere at once? It's like, oh, well, he's supernatural. And even, you know, if you've played the Friday the 13th game uh, from Gun Media, right, where he kind of can just teleport around the map, it kind of is capturing that idea of like, oh, well, yeah, he's this supernatural being. And I really like the idea of kind of grounding him for a majority of the film, right? He's going to be impervious no matter what they do to him. But at the same time, you know, trying to make it a little bit more believable before, you know, he ends up getting his head shoved through a wood chipper uh, by the end of the movie and whatnot. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, that was really interesting in a way that I wasn't expecting just because of, you know, how lackluster, I suppose, the backstories on a lot of slasher villains or icons are for the most part. You know, it kind of is just like, well, yeah, this is a crazy guy with a mask and a weapon. Um, and, you know, at the same time, this new take doesn't necessarily like rewrite the character, which is part of what I want to see in reboots or remakes, right? Is that somebody's taking a character and they can have these additions that maybe give them like a little more personality or perhaps more texture to make them more interesting, um, which then can, you know, help with the kills and whatnot. Like you said, there's countless moments where he starts baiting people like early on with the sleeping bag. Uh, and then, of course, the bear trap. And later on, when he throws the axe and he lets the guy kind of bleed out while he's crying for help, um, it is the type of thing that it just it offers a little bit more creativity, but it, it doesn't fundamentally rewrite the character that, you know, fans of the franchise or whatever are going to cry foul, uh, if you will. But, you know, I'm sure there were some people that weren't pleased with it, but uh, it definitely, I think, was a breath of fresh air for the character you know, after 12 films or whatever. I I agree. And I, I don't think they 
they don't do harm to the character in this, right? They only make him seem crazy strong all the time. I think the only like shot that I was like, okay, that's laughable is there's like that one scene where they're trying to go back in the house and they like pan up and bat Jason is sitting there with a fucking machete on the roof. And you're like, okay, that was just excessive. Like that, that didn't need to happen. Um, but then him jumping down and like jabbing the arrow through the cop's eye, I was like, okay, well that's kind of cool. At least there was a payoff there. Um, but other than, like other than that one shot, there's nothing that that made him feel not Jason like. Um, and it's still I like the the little moments that kind of show that he's maybe not still fully developed mentally. Like when he's just like anger throwing those canoes because he thinks someone is there. It's like a very child like manner instead of him like looking up where they would potentially be. Um, like he still kind of runs on a wonder instinct which is kind of nice although still highly territorial but like yeah I, I think he was played very very well for that film and it it was a excuse me it was a movie that like the more i got on into it the more i just liked it like as soon as they started like taking off that main like the main cast group it i was just like i can't believe this is still going and that they're still thinking of like really good kills for these people yeah. And, you know, in getting into some of the new casts, once, you know, you get past that initial uh, 20 minutes, uh, what did you think of them? Did you think, you know, they really do play to the kind of archetype character roles that you would assume for a film like this or for a slasher, right? Um, but I'm curious, you know, how those characters landed for you. What, what Who are the notable ones? Uh, well, Jared Padalecki was notable just because I am a Supernatural fan, but it was also weird to see, like, that he had to film this during probably his worst hair phase ever. Um, mm. Unfortunate for him. But then <laughs> I thought he was fine, even though he was just basically playing Jared Padalecki. Um, didn't really change. <laughs> uh, Danielle Pembroke. Is that how you say it to her? I think that's who it is. Uh, uh, for Jenna? Yeah. Um, I think it's Pennebaker. Pennebaker, that's it. She's She was really good, uh, especially having watched a decent amount of the CW Flash and thinking mm. one way of her acting in the scene, it's like, oh, she's a very different person. Um, <laughs> thought she was great. Uh, apparently, and IMDb is always where I go to after a movie, but I didn't realize. Well, one, I noticed Michael Bay as a producer on this, but I was like, that's a weird thing to note. And then him saying <laughs> that the Trent in this movie is the same Trent as Transformers. <laughs> they exist in the same <laughs> universe is very funny. Um but yeah, like they basically had a bunch of characters who you either when you saw them, you're like, when that person dies, it's going to be really good. Are the I think the two like Chewy and uh, Chewy's friend Lawrence. Lawrence, like I didn't want them to go because I was like, oh, they're the cool guys. Like <laughs> they're just here to relax. Um, so I was bummed that I knew that they were going to probably go as well. Uh, so at least they made it so that the cast was enjoyable. Um, yeah, I, I, I like them. There was I'll probably remember most of the people in that movie, which is very good. Uh, instead of just getting to a point where like, yeah, there was this person who was killed like X. Like, uh, I feel like that way about the original where I'm kind of like, well, I know Kevin Bacon dies with an arrow through the throat. I don't remember anyone else in that movie. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think that that really is one of the best compliments you can give this movie and why when people talk about, you know, this movie was released in a time when it was very popular and still is to some degree uh, bashing remakes and reboots with something like this, though, you know, while you do have those characters that have their eye rolling moments, right, they're not free from that or, uh, you know, they definitely have a fair bit of camp, uh, no matter what their role is. At the same time, though, I feel like it's much more condensed for the movie. You know, there's not a great deal of time that feels necessarily wasted or just kind of like feels meandering and not really serving a purpose. Like if you go back and watch some of the older Friday 13th movies, I mean, some of those movies, a third of it, it's just like nothing really is happening or nothing memorable or even funny. Right. Yeah. I think even with characters in this movie, especially like with Trent, right. Who very quickly establishes that he's the asshole kind of jock, uh, the alpha, if you will. 
but at the same time, like he still has memorable lines of dialogue that make you laugh out loud, like telling this girl that her tits are stupendous. Like that's fucking such a legendary <laughs> line of dialogue that is hilarious. And it, at the same time, you know, when you have these character interactions between the groups, again, it's in service of either fleshing out, you know, uh, Clay's sort of searching for his sister and whatnot, the relationship that he's developing with Jenna, or, you know, you have uh, Chewie and Lawrence's like friendship and whatnot uh, being a highlight. And I just, I was surprised every time I come back to this movie that nothing really feels like it's just, you know, we're just going to keep dragging this out until the next kill. Um, it's either entertaining or it's in service of something um, which you really can't say about a lot of slashers from this era, I feel like. I feel like a lot of them, it's kind of just like, I guess we got like 25 minutes to kill before the next kill uh, <laughs> because that's just how these movies are paced sometimes. But uh, yeah, you know, like Lawrence and Chewie, especially on this rewatch with my buddies, we're just like, yeah, like it makes their deaths more impactful than if they were just, you know, character X, Y, or Z in a normal slasher, just because you have those little moments of like what seems like a genuine friendship amongst a group of people that don't really seem like they're friends. That is the one thing that always sticks out with this friend group. It's like, they don't really, any of them seem to like each other other than those two. <laughs> yeah. Like I didn't really get how Jenna was part of that group. Cause originally I thought she was Trent's girlfriend for like, a yeah, chunk I always of the movie, and then it's it's yeah. not. He's just really mad that like she would talk to Clay, so then that's just all really bizarre. Um, because like I don't know what happened or where it was really lost on me, but like when Trent takes Brit into the room, I was like, is he just? Why does he care about this girl then? Like <laughs> he's with this other girl. I it just it blew my mind. Um, but everything else like. It, maybe it's just Brit and Jenna are really friendly. <laughs> so that's why she's like <laughs> in that group. Right. And Chewie has drugs. So they bring him along. <laughs> Therefore, Lawrence is there because they're clearly friends. I don't know. There's There's got to be some connection where he wants him that that house. But then my other question, like also, why did it take this long for Jason to start expanding outwards? Like it felt like. Trent's dad had that place for a very long time. Like he's hunted in those woods. What, why did it take now for Jason to be like, that's the place I'm going to start taking out. Or even the place where he gets the hockey mask. Like that dude had nothing to do with anything and seemed like he was enough off the beaten path that it didn't mean anything. Um, but it wasn't because six weeks prior that first group went in and that like set him off on like this crazy rampage. And like, now he just can't stop. I don't know. And like, did Jason grow the marijuana to lure kids in? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you know, I think that's a good, and I always forget um, the time difference between the opening of the film to when, you know, Jared or Clay begins his, uh, you know, his search for his sister but yeah, I, I mean, I would assume that that's the thing, right? Is that Jason has been basically dormant, just, I guess, digging tunnels for however many years. Um, and then it kickstarts his need to like, just keep branching out because he feels like his territory is being encroached, I suppose. And yeah, I guess that redneck farmer or whatever was the one that was growing the weed, but at, oh no, he says he found yeah. it, right? So it's like, <laughs> it just grows <laughs> randomly, I guess, in Camp Crystal Lake. <laughs> sure. <laughs> While there might be some like inconsistencies at the same time, it's perfectly serviceable for a Friday the 13th film, right? I think that um, they even do a good job at the very intro of kind of like catching up people on the lore of Camp Crystal Lake, right? And again, like I didn't come to this film fresh in terms of uh, not having seen all the other movies and whatnot. So it's hard for me to really get it gauge when I asked you earlier, you know, how accessible this movie is. I feel like it is quite brisk in terms of the lore. And then, you know, there are going to be a couple of moments in the movie that they kind of skirt past logic, like the whole finding the mask scene, like you said, doesn't really meet, make any sense why he's in that guy's barn all of a sudden and whatnot, especially when that guy's just like been living there for who knows, 10 years or whatever. Um, but at the same time, I'm okay with it because it justifies why he finds the mask and you get that cool moment. Um, even if I wish sackhead Jason had been around a little longer, cause that's probably my favorite fit from all the movies. Cause it's the one that is like legitimately terrifying, yeah. uh, in part two, which I really, really dig. 
Yeah, I think he did uh, I, that scene like where he kills the dude, but it's, his mask is torn. And then you get the brief look of like what the face looks like underneath it. And it's like this cool grown up version of the boy you see at the end of uh, one. I was like, well done. Very, very well done. But then there is like something also ominous, like when he puts that mask on initially and he's just like looking with the eye, you're like, holy shit. Like the scene with Brit where he just like basically grabs her mouth and like lifts her off the ground to choke her out. But like he just has that one eye looking through the mask in that shot. Like that is terrifying because that's a dude who doesn't care. Right. Like he doesn't need to. And he just wants these people off of his area or out of his area. Um, that was a very gnarly, gnarly kill because of that. Yeah. You know, I got to give props to the cinematographer, uh, Daniel C. Pearl, who there's so many brief shots of this movie of Jason, but at the same time, they really capture him in a light that makes him like truly terrifying. Maybe it's just because I came to so many of the Friday the 13th films uh, too late. You know, I mean, they, I was... 20, 30 years removed from when they were released when I got around to seeing most of them. And it's like, I appreciated the kills and Jason as a figure is always Brad. But, you know, this was the movie that made him truly terrifying. And it's for so many of these shots, right? The one you mentioned, also even when he um, is on the the shore at the lake, right? And he kills the kid with the bow and arrow. And then you get that shot of him just standing there on the shore, just watching her. Like, that's a really chilling scene for somebody that is largely viewed with this sort of campy lens, if you will, from, you know, the 30 years of prominence that he's had. And I just really like those little moments. Um, and I think that they do a good job of just capturing him as this imposing force. It also helps, you know, Derek Mears is huge as fuck. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, that kind of like influence, I think, from uh, Rob Zombie's Halloween, where Jason goes from being a normal guy to being like seven feet tall or something like that, which is like, kind of cartoonish but still terrifying just the way in which they capture this supernatural figure but is still just like a man um it was really really cool and that that shore scene is something that i'll probably over for a long time just because like the arrow shot while logically makes no sense for how the body goes down <laughs> um doesn't matter it's still a cool that he like turned and was like huh uh yeah. <laughs> but then i like the idea that Jason was comfortable waiting for that girl to just drown like that. He would have just stayed there the whole time and never gone in the water. And I'm like, you'll tire yourself out and then you won't be able to swim because I'm here. But when she decided to try and swim away, that's when he hunted her down. And then that kill on the dock is so gnarly. Like I, I would not have thought that he would have lifted her up out of the water on the machete and then like pulled the machete through so she would go back down. I was like, holy shit, what a movie. Uh <laughs> <laughs> that kill, though, is a great example of, you know, talking about the advancements in whether it's, you know, the practical work, prosthetic work and whatnot. You know, if you have a remake or a reboot that's going to capitalize on the advancements that have been made, those are the types of kills you want to see, right? I think that just the way in which you can make something occur in a film such as this, that feels like a natural continuation, rather than, again, coming back to this idea of retaining, I suppose, the essence, uh, <laughs> that sounds a little pretentious, the essence of Jason, but just like things that you would have, they would have shown in the original films if they were capable of doing it back in the day. Um, whether that be budgetary restrictions or just, you know, the practicality of actually making that work. Um, I, yeah, that kill in particular is one where it's like, you're just not expecting that. But furthermore, to your point, you know, this new take on Jason, he was more than happy with just letting her drown out there because that shows that, you know, he is this kind of tactician, right? Even, you know, he could waste a bunch of arrows and try to hit her or whatever. But the reality is, is that she's going to drown if she doesn't come right to yeah. him. Um, and if anything, it it makes him not the sort of, I guess, the mongoloid killer that he's always portrayed as being in the original films, um, which I think, again, like takes this character that was static for so many years um, and truly makes them terrifying in a new way uh, that feels like a natural continuation. Yeah, I, I, I feel like from that moment on, it just felt like the, the kills that were happening were ramped up for like, holy shit, but then also just 
got progressively more horrifying when you took them from like the lens of how he treated that one kill right like mm. lawrence's death is something that i'll probably remember for a very very long time because throwing the yeah. accident i was like okay that sucks like that is that's a terrible way to get hit on anything but then him just screaming for help and wanting people to come out and help him was already gnarly because i just i can't like i think of blair witch where you just hear your friend off in the distance screaming but you have no idea how to get to them um and that's just innately terrifying in many ways but for jason to realize oh they're not coming they're on to me i just need to end this dude then because it's annoying me like and lifting him up and just tossing him on the tree trunk so the axe goes through the rest of the body i was like holy crap dude like my boy lawrence went out bad (laughs) (laughs) well also you know the reality that jason could have just let him bleed out right but he's showing and you know to your point earlier about you know still having some childlike tendencies I feel like the reason that he throws him so that way the axe then, you know, perforates the front of his chest is because he's frustrated that this bait didn't work, right? It's him showing the fact that he's pissed off, like, oh, they should have fucking came out. The last 20 kids would have fallen for that. Why aren't they? Um, And I I like those little moments of aggression from him um, that are very subtle. But if anything, it just it shows that there's more thought into what he's doing, um, which makes him, you know, if it was possible, makes a guy in a mask that kills people for uh, for fun, uh, even more menacing uh, than you would expect. But yeah, let's, I want to keep talking about some of the kills in this movie, like which other ones stood out to you? Because there's so many, there's so many in this one, which is not something you can always say about a lot of the sequels. Yeah, I, uh, I made sure to note the ones that were like really hitting. Um, there's definitely, oh, the lighting. This is such a weird thing, but the lighting in Chewie's kill, I really liked. Um, I mm. thought just like the way it was like flashing and like you would just see his mask every once in a while. Um, that was really, really cool. Um, well, Chewie's death, too, I think, again, talking about what little development they do with the characters in this to break out of that sort of just, just kind of stereotypical archetype of what slasher uh, victims are. Like, just giving him a little personality and making him be, like, the go-lucky member of the group, more or less. And then to have him have this kill that is so up close and personal, not only for him, but for the audience, right? I think a lot of the kills are seemingly from afar, Mm -hmm. almost. And with him, like, it's so personal and you have to, like, linger in that moment. Um, The way it's filmed, too, you're, like, basically standing right next to Jason as he's, like, sticking this, uh, it was a hook or a needle or something into his neck. Um, And it's just, it's so so brutal in a way that um, is also, like, kind of heartbreaking because you don't feel about other characters the way you feel about his character for the most part. Yeah, I also realized that I've been saying Brit and it was Bree this whole time. Um, But... (laughs) That's okay. I I completely forgot what her name was, so I was going with Brit. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then... Because he knew it had to be good. Trent's death was exceptional. <laughs> Just because, like, you see that truck. And I thought it was, like, I was trying to think of, what did Jason do to get a truck to stop right there? Like, that is so crazy. And then it being just somebody else, like a random passerby who was like, what's going on, was awesome. But then Jason being like, nah. <laughs> and, like, killing Trent and then sticking him on the rebar of that truck. Like, just basically letting that guy drive off with him but not knowing he's there is so funny for Trent's demise. Um, just turn him into, like, a douchebag cabal. Pretty which much. Is like <laughs> the perfect way to send off somebody that has been such an asshole the entire movie. Yeah. Uh, I, I thought that was very, very well done. And then the when it gets to the ending, like, I don't know what I expected. I At first, I was like, well, maybe two people are going to survive in this movie. That's crazy. And then they find Whitney. And I'm like, maybe three people are going to survive in this movie. That's impossible. It's so like when they t- when they take out Jenna, I was like, well, that's a bummer. But I guess it makes sense. Like, you, you can't just take out Whitney, who you've been trying the whole movie to get to, at least... Not here. Like, it, they, she needs to feel, like, at least safe in some way. Um, I totally thought Clay was dead in that bus. Like, I it was like, oh, he's done. But, like, every time he would take a hit, he just somehow was back up. I'm like, dude, this dude has 
fucking buff as Jason is. Um, so I, <laughs> I was kind of expecting mostly it would just be Whitney. <laughs> like all this shit just happened. And she's like, well, I got out. <laughs> that sucks. Um, but I wasn't expecting like a brother and sister pair to survive. But I feel like that's in quotations because who knows, like, if that ending is like the ending to the first movie where it's like, is she dreaming that or the Jenna death was so shocking. I thought the first time I saw it and it still kind of is like, there's it, I don't know. There's like a nasty nastiness to that. in just like the setup for this being, you know, the, the basically the romance for the lead. And then, you know, Oh, they're going to make it out. And then she's the one that gets killed and not him. Yeah. Right. I was, Assuming that he was going to die and then it was going to be the two women that, um, you know, overpower Jason and kill him or whatnot. Um, But there's like and I don't know if it's because, you know, it's a European director or something, but that always struck me as a very specific choice that gives this movie, again, like a nasty quality that I don't always attribute to slashers. Right. I think maybe it's because so many slashers are so prescribed to a certain sort of blueprint, if you will. Um, in terms of their pacing and the way in which character fates play out and whatnot. Um, but I was always, <laughs> it sounds fucked up to say, it's like kind of appreciative of the fact that I could be surprised by a Friday the 13th movie um, in that way. Granted, you know, it sucks for that character, but um, it kind of it kind of catches you off guard and then it makes that final act that much more unpredictable, almost, I think, because you're like, oh, well, if that character's not safe, who's basically been the buildup for this love interest who really is safe um and you know then you get to play that guessing game in your head of like oh is it going to be clay that gets killed is it going to be his sister that gets killed at the end which you know it'd be even more fucked up if you spend the whole movie looking for whitney and then she's the one that gets killed as well (laughs) um but speaking of whitney actually what did you think of the fact that you know she kind of has jason immunity the whole movie right she uses that necklace and the resemblance to his mother and even you know using jason's uh, name with him kind of like i don't know shocks jason out of his murderous rampage and reminds him like oh this is a person i can't touch this is the one person that kind of is safe what did you think of that kind of story element i think it worked because of going back to that like still childlike wonder on things like this is a Jason who witnessed his mother being beheaded, right? So, like, there's something that's, like, very broken and longing for that mother figure to still be around. So, for him to encounter somebody who reminds him so much of his mother in some way makes sense that he would attach himself to her, kind of like a baby bird scenario. Um, and that she would have, like that kind of power over him and it's his fall in this movie which i think is actually very cool like she it's weird that she notices that she has this ability because it's not played up for more than like one scene that we're aware of um but when she uses it on him it's still very effective and it's used well to the point like okay she she knew what she was doing um and then there is that moment of like absolute betrayal when she attacks him right and like you hear him make a sound he's never made in that entire film like he's just like so frustrated and like almost heartbroken at what he had just happened to him uh that it gives him like this neat lair i really like this version of jason is what i'm actually getting to i yeah. think so <laughs> fucking cool um with especially set up with all those kinds of pieces yeah you know it is kind of a bummer then or not kind of it definitely is a bummer that we still haven't gotten another friday 13th film after this right because that would be you know when you think about the life of the sequels and whatnot they got increasingly weird which i was a fan of but there is no real clear and that's because they clearly didn't really have a plan right they this was back in the day when they didn't have blueprints and phases really for series and whatnot um but it is the type of thing where you're like man i wish that they would continue with this because this is the most interesting version of jason i think outside of the more supernatural side of the back half of all the sequels Mm. which you know are interesting i would suppose creatively creatively speaking um but you know they don't really feel like they're connected at all it's like oh we're going to play this by year for each sequel and to see a movie that would follow this one up with him having the survivalist aspect and how they could make camp crystal lake be more interesting of a location that's been always been a big issue, I think, with these movies is that it's like 
yeah, it's a campground, but what do they really do with that outside of like having a kill at an archery range or having a kill by the water or the canoes or whatever? And this aspect of Jason being a survivalist, I think it makes that setting more interesting because you can see the ways he can like booby trap it yeah. um, and whatnot. So it's a real bummer that we didn't get another one of these. But uh, I do want to talk about Jason's demise because that is probably one of the coolest sequences, I think, of this movie. Uh, what did you think about that Jason uh, Jason kill? <laughs> uh, I I really dug it. There's, there's another movie that does something not exactly the same, but pretty similar with their villain at the end. Um, and I, I dug that just cause it's like, it's horrifying for the villain, right? You're like, wow, I don't want to be in that situation. Like you've done some terrible things. So you kind of deserve this, which is a weird way of putting that. Um, but it's a horror film. So whatever. Uh, but like, I love how it just went through stages. Like I thought he was probably fine at one point. And then I thought the, them putting the chain into that, like wood chipper would mean that like it would hold it and that would just choke him out. And that, that would be how they did it. But the fact that it like, he broke down and it was just pulling him into it. Like, Oh no, this is a very slow, slow, gnarly death that I don't really know how someone comes back from that, but horror films right who knows but i think that that's what's so cool about how they handle jason in this movie is that again for three-fourths of the movie he's very grounded in his portrayal and in his abilities and then you get to that end and it's like oh well you know they're gonna have this no bars kind of just like fight to the death at the end and that's when the more supernatural side of him can come out um and they do it very gradually, I think, through that moment, right? Because like you said, they start choking him out and, oh, that's not working. So now they have to do something that's even more over the top and even more aggressive. But those elements are contained in the last 10 minutes of the movie, yeah. um, which also makes it that much more entertaining. Um, and also what I really like about that scene is that it's a good example of, you know, how they're condensing the first four films. Um, because you have that scene where Jason jumps through the window, which is like a famous shot from the fourth movie. And then they choke him out at the third movie with a chain or a rope or something. Um, and just seeing them take elements from past films. But again, like going in this new direction of like, oh, well, not only is a wood chipper going to be involved, but we're going to basically eviscerate the back of his head, um, which is just like has this awesome gory payout or payoff. And yeah, you know, as somebody that has seen so many of those movies, it's like, oh, coming back to that, it's just as fun and just as, you know, refreshing for the series. Um, and then, of course, you have that. I, well, before I get to the very last shot of the movie, to your point earlier about, you know, how certain scenes were lit. I thought that whole entire fight sequence was lit so incredibly well and just really well choreographed. I feel like it's the most action oriented uh, of the fight scenes within the film. And it kind of sidesteps that common problem of a lot of, um, you know, 2000, early 2000s films where like, I don't know, there was like a lot of quick cuts and a lot of editing. So it almost becomes like you get lost in the geography of a scene. Mm -hmm. But for this, it was like very clear. It was, but at the same time lit really well and has that, uh, that really brutal payoff. Agreed. If it, everything flows super well and you can kind of like to your comment on the, not losing the geography like you know the layout of that space so there isn't like a surprise when someone is like somewhere else or is doing something in like another side like no that they should logically be able to be there and it doesn't feel like a weird continuity error now there suddenly are um which i appreciate moments like that because there are definitely times where people are doing something like that in that space and then suddenly someone's somewhere else and you're like how do they get there that quickly like that like I don't want to be pulled out in a moment like that. Like I was just all in for that ride and I thought it was very, very cool. Yeah. The momentum also, you know, as soon as we kind of get past that intro scene and then you establish like, Oh, this is the new group of protagonists and whatnot. The movie really doesn't lose momentum in a way that again, like is a common problem. I think with some of the sequels in this series, um, it really does kind of just, it's all gas, no breaks for the remainder of it. Um, and to see them actually nail the landing for that ending fight scene. And then, you know, you have that, the kind of uh, the stinger at the end of, oh, he's actually not dead, right? And you have that great moment where they throw the mask in the water and you get this kind of like slow-mo shot of it f fall into the bottom of the lake. And then you get the 
the Jason music basically. And then it's like, oh yeah, he's not really dead and jumping through the boards is like fantastic. And it, it was a perfect ending to this movie because, you know, obviously they wanted to make more after this, but at the same time, even if we have to wait another decade for one of these films, this feels at least self-contained enough that it doesn't have the issue that some of the sequels do where it's like, oh, we're hinting at a bigger story or something like that that could connect it. The way that this ends, I, in my opinion, is like perfect because it feels like a time capsule of a remake or a reboot. Very much so. Like, it's kind of like that. I mean, it's the end of the first film, right? Like when she's just on that boat out in the lake and thinks that everything's fine and just gets pulled under by that Jason figure who's still somehow a kid, but then grows up to, it doesn't matter. Um, but like for this, it, it felt like it was paying homage to that in the right way. Like, you're like, Oh, well she didn't make it like, ha, of course not. But we don't know for sure. Cause clay is right there. Right. So I think it's a cool thing. Like if we do a sequel and we pick up from right here, great. If not, like you probably had a really fun ride. We hope you did. And this is, a great ending because it's kind of downer-ish enough um, yeah. but maybe some hope if you look at it from a really bright angle. Absolutely and I, what I really do like about this movie is you know it doesn't feel like it commits the the sort of like the sin of so many other reboots and remakes where it's like oh there are moments in it that it's like oh this is clearly just done for fans right um, and you know we've kind of talked about that a little bit but even in going back and watching it, I really struggle to think about moments that feel like they're just like blatantly bad examples of doing fan service, right? I think there's plenty of callbacks and there's moments uh, I'm sure that you've noticed where it's just like, oh, well, this is reminiscent of something that was probably in a past film, right? They kind of use the music, uh, the Jason sort of theme mm -hmm. to signify that or to uh, reestablish that. But at the same time, like, I really do struggle to think of moments where it's like, oh, this is just like, for the fans this moment, which again, not that Friday the 13th has ever been this super deep, complicated thing, but at the same time, like it feels more welcoming, I would say than some of the other reboots or, uh, or remakes. It felt more in line with, even though this is a very different kind of comparison, but it felt to me like it was more in line with how new nightmare handled things. Cause this new nightmare could be, although there's a lot of meta bullshit in that film. Um, but there was enough like calls to that original movie where you're like, oh, th like this is really neat um, without it just being so blatantly like in your face. Um, yeah, the, this movie, like if I had never, ever seen a movie, I would never be like, oh, or Friday 13th movie. Sorry. I don't think there would be a scene where I was like, oh, this must be the thing for them. Right. Like it. It just it felt like stuff was happening naturally, and especially since I mean, all I know is one and like at least the intro to two, like the stuff that felt like there were call outs from that. I was just like, oh, neat, <laughs> like good job. <laughs> it, it didn't feel heavy handed. Well, that's great to hear because it is always the thing that I wonder with films like this. Um, but you know, I think I've I've shown this to enough people at this point where I'm just like, yeah, you know, this feels like the go-to sort of for those types of slashers. Again, you know, my immediate friend group is not the biggest of horror fans, but uh, when I get to, when I win uh, movie night picks at my house, it's the type of thing where I'm like, oh yeah, I'll throw that in the rotation for people and whatnot. Um, but I guess my last question for you after chatting about the remake, do you feel like you want to go back and rewatch some of the other sequels from this series? Or do you kind of feel like, oh, this remake or reboot kind of just, it, gives me the Friday the 13th experience that uh, I think I was looking for. I do want to go back. I, I think, I mean, it's a franchise I've wanted to see everything for at some point. Um, and I've pretty much done that almost with all of the Halloweens and I've done it with all of the Nightmare Before or Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, so I feel like I kind of owe it to this franchise to do it. It's just, I think the thing that's kept me away is there's, so many of them um yeah <laughs> and so many of them end up varying quality <laughs> yeah and so like i i know that i'm gonna be getting myself into kind of a wild probably like few weeks of watching because i also think that especially when something has varying quality like i have to take a break for a couple days and go do something else and then come back to it um 
I, I essentially did that to myself on Christmas and watched all of the Santa Claus movies and then regretted Christmas movies for like the rest of the season. So <laughs> um, I, I want to make sure I'm in a place I can have free time or like know that I'm going to be busy for a weekend so I can step away for a few days and not have to watch a film and feel like I can get a break. But I also know that there's, um, which I feel like I've seen, but clearly don't remember much of it. Uh, there is like a documentary that I think is on Shutter that goes over the entire franchise, at least until 10. Um, and it just kind of covers like, here's how this movie was made. Here's all of the kills in it and how all the practical work was done to make those kills work. They did something similar for Nightmare on Elm Street. And the Nightmare on Elm Street one's very, very good. Um, but I'll probably watch all of them and rewatch that just to kind of see how they've done certain things. And like, because I think that's one of my favorite things about slasher films and just horror films in general is like those kills, they're always impressive, but like the work it takes to get those done always intrigues me. Like there's the Ben Feldman kill in this movie where Jason puts the machete through his head. And then it was the first time in the franchise that they used a CG blade. So they like made sure it was stopped at the right time. They had the blade go through and then they like digitized the head opening. And then they also digitized like the face droop because he lost muscle control on that side of his head. So like that is all <laughs> happening in CG. And I just think that's super cool. And it looked well and it wasn't a thing that like detracted from it, even for like it's time because CG work just escalates so quickly. Um, so I, I thought that was really, really cool. But then also want to go back and like in Halloween one, when you put an arrow through Kevin Bacon's throat, like how does that work? <laughs> like I'm seeing all that kind of stuff. Well, that's how I, you know, a couple summers ago, I was doing double features of these movies for the first time. And so I was doing a double feature and then I would watch the chapters on that uh, documentary, which was Crystal Lake Memories, The Complete History of Friday the 13th, just to have that extra context and whatnot. And if anything, the, watching the documentary in between the double features to get caught up with the series was like a great way, I thought, to break it up. Because, you know, like you, I wouldn't really want to watch, you know, nothing but Friday the 13th movies or just slashers in general, you know, for a whole week. Uh, that'd be a little much. But I think just having the documentary side of things and the documentary is long as fuck it's like seven yeah. hours i think um but at the same time you know it was a great way to sort of just break up the viewing sessions of those and getting to hear you know what went into the movies and it even gave me like an appreciation for some of the entries that i didn't much care for um which is like you know that's a big part of kind of maybe i don't know maturing and watching films is just like you don't have to love everything but hearing the stories of what went into elements of those movies that actually does work yeah. um, gives you a better appreciation, I think, overall. Because like I said, uh, some of the sequels have some real varying qualities, but, uh, you know, getting to learn how they were able to pull off the like three or four scenes in them that's super memorable, um, I think it gives you a better appreciation, not just for the franchise, but, uh, you know, movie making in general, uh, if you will. But uh, yeah, man, before we uh, wrap up, were there any other elements of the uh, Friday 13th reboot that I kind of skimmed over that you wanted to talk about? Oh, the perimeter alarms. I thought that was oh, super yeah, yeah, yeah. fucking cool. Like I I didn't. It's kind of one of those things where you're like, how would he know where anyone is at any given point? And when they tripped that one perimeter alarm I was like, oh, Oh, that's brilliant. Like, that is actually such a cool way for him to actually, like, not only track, but, like, know where they are. Because if when it goes off and it goes into, like, Whitney's room, when it's also revealed that she's there. But, like, you can see that there's multiple strands. So it's probably linked to various areas, at least around his premises. Um, so I thought that was super, super cool. Well, that, you know, did you see the Wrong Turn remake? That they did. I, um, did I think it was last year or the year before that. But anyways, the, the it wasn't a great movie, but they took the elements from the original film and changed it. Like the original movie is about like mutant rednecks or something or other. But in this one, it's more about like a cult of survivalists that are out in the woods. And so they had it's kind of like saw survivalists. Um, and it, so they weaponized the woods with all these traps. And while I was rewatching this movie, Friday the 13th, I was thinking like if they had continued the survivalist aspects 
the ways in which he could weaponize Camp Crystal Lake with like varying traps and things like that. Talk about that first blood influence, right? Having like spike traps or I don't know, logs that fall from trees and stuff like that. Like just the potential for those types of moments, again, could really deliver something that feels original while, you know, not completely changing the essence of that character. Yeah, I, I kind of hope, and I, I doubt it will, I'm sure if now that it's this long, like what tomorrow is the 14th anniversary of this film or something like that. Like at that point, they're probably not going to just remake it <laughs> um, or right. continue or <laughs> sorry, they would remake it. They wouldn't continue off from that film. Um, but I hope whoever does pays attention to the way Jason was in that movie. Cause I think that's a much more interesting version of that character uh, who has more layers than he should. Um, and just feels like a really interesting villain. Kind of the way that like, I actually really like Rob Zombie's Halloween a lot. And like, I think yeah, the too. way that he changed Michael Myers and that felt right. Where you're like, okay, like Michael Myers is not a kid at heart. He is just evil. And he grew up and kept getting more and more evil. Whereas this one, I, I kind of like that. Like he's still a child in some aspects because he died young they don't explain how he came back and would witness his mother's death. I don't think you ever really need to. Um, but because of that, I think there's still like a part of him that's like going to be perpetually just the mind of a child. And that can affect a lot of things in a really cool way. Well, I think that that is a really interesting aspect of that character. And, you know, they're making a, uh, a Friday the 13th series. Brian Fuller is uh I believe he's the showrunner on that or he's producing it. But, um, you know, that is a really interesting aspect that I would like to see them develop in that series. Um, and that's my hope for that series, right, is that it's not just, you know, like a stock standard slasher movie every week for every episode and whatnot, but like going down a different route with that character, because I believe it's when Jason's a child. Um, and so kind of like capturing how that character's perception of the world um, you know, is and changes and whatnot. Um, also, you know, he's behind Hannibal, which is one of the best uh, horror TV shows, I think, of all time. Yep. So I'm pretty confident that uh, he'll find some interesting aspect of that character with that. And also probably some very interesting kills because there are yeah. <laughs> few shows that I, or few even movies I've seen that have had kills be as like outrageous as Hannibal has had. Like there's just on network television. Yeah, no like I, I still can't believe that was on broadcast TV. <laughs> like there's just so many times and so many scenes. Like there's actually that's one of the only probably shows or even films that have maybe like cringe from something I saw, and it was that like Michael Shannon like cutting himself apart scene. I was oh, just like. Yeah what am I, why is this on TV? Yeah. Like, <laughs> what is happening? Well, talk about like not knowing what to expect every week. I mean, I came to that show late after it had gotten canceled. I just, I, I think the Blu-rays were like 20 bucks or whatever. So I bought the box set and it was like every single episode, I felt like I was on the edge of my seat um, just to see like what kind of fucked up shit they would do in the following week. Because like you said, if anything they get, the longer that show goes on for, the bolder they get with what they can get away with. Cause they're like, well, apparently they're not going to cancel us right out the gate. So like, we'll just get weirder and weirder with it. Um, which makes for, yeah, I would say the most disturbing show I think I've seen on TV. Yes. And like also stuff that just hangs with you forever. Like I think of that, like sectioned off body that was just like put into those oh like God. pieces of plastic that looked like one, like from an angle. And then you just saw how many like slices of like, who does like who takes the time to kill somebody that way? The killers in this world. I mean, that's what's really great about the direction that they had with that. And is my hope for, you know, um, the Friday 13th series is that the kills are going to be have the like personality, I suppose, of the person that's killing them. Right. I think that they do a really good job of separating uh, Mads Mikaelson's Hannibal from, you know, Anthony Hopkins' Hannibal, because one is kind of like a sledgehammer and the other one has this elegance to everything that they do, yeah. um, which crafts its own identity, which, you know, speaking of Jason as a child, like seeing how a child would, 
So this is one of those conversations that like, if you listen back to it, you're just like how a child would kill somebody. Like, what do you mean? Um, but like having sort of the qualities of what you would assume, like an adolescent killing somebody might be, or their, per, their distorted perception of reality or what they're doing. Like that makes for something that could be very dark and very, uh, very interesting, but you know, entertaining, hopefully at the same time. Agreed. Agreed. I, I look forward to that show very much, mostly because Brian Fuller's attached. Yeah. Well, he's one of those guys that I think proved in a very short amount of time that, uh, you know, is kind of like sight on scene. I'll watch anything he does just because he's got that unique vision for things. But uh, yeah, man, Mikey, this was a pleasure having you on. We're finally getting to do this and chatting yeah. uh, Friday the 13th. Thanks so much for coming on. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for having me. And uh, if, if you ever get around to watching Behind the Mask, let me know because I would love to come and talk about that. I've watched that once a year easily. It's very, very good. Well, we will. I would definitely have you back to chat about that. And uh, I think hopefully in the near future, you and I are going to share notes on uh, Skinamarink as well. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, Matt, this was a pleasure. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Daily Horror Habit. You can follow the show on Twitter at Daily Horror Pod or give me a follow at NotFunnyJ. Thanks again for listening and I'll see you guys next week.